recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 19th, 2013. I thank you for being here. I thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I see now that many more people are listening to, um, to this program on Christagenia's five radio streams and are listening on TalkShoe. That's what I would hope. Eventually, uh, I would hope to only have a trickle on Talk Show. It looks like tonight we're close to that, actually. But the um, I have intermittent complaints about the quality on some of, on, on some of the Christogenia radio streams. That may be due to the quality of those listeners' um, Internet connections. I have the fifth stream set up for a low bit rate, 16 kilobits per second, and that should be the best stream for, um, for for poor connections. The stream URL is radio5.christagenia.org. It, it's the fifth player on the website. The, the, um, I'll try to set another player to a low bit rate perhaps next week and, and see if that helps those people. I was supposed to be on... Um, on Blog Talk Radio last night on the American Nationalist Association, Association's new network um, with David Bailey and, and his new program, Alba Voce. Blog Talk Radio had some serious um, technical problems last night, and, and they weren't David's fault. It, it, it just, um, the throughput was horrible, and the bandwidth was um, what was a huge problem, and, and voices weren't coming through, and the program had to be canceled. Hopefully, that, that, that's actually the second night in a row that the American Nationalist Association had had problems with Blog Talk Radio. And um, Rodney Martin, the night before last, had had the same problem. Technical issues had shut down his program. The, um, the program I was supposed to be on last night is rescheduled for next Thursday at 7 p.m. There will be a link on the front page of Christagenia and an announcement for the program. What is universalism? We are going to answer that question shortly. I have been labeling a certain so-called Christian identity pastor, if I must use the term, as a universalist ever since I stopped working with him about 25 months ago. Tired of being accused of name-calling, as if somehow I had no substance to my accusations. That substance has long been posted on the Christogenia Forum, by the way. Last month here on a Saturday evening, I laid out a large cross-section of the evidence in a single two-and-a-half-hour program with the help of Sword Brethren, supplying many audio clips directly from this person's own recordings and then responding to them from Scripture. There is a wealth of other evidence which can be brought to light directly from the written or spoken words of this person, which further support my assertions. However, it is hard to play football with a ball of jelly. The person whom I have accused consistently speaks out of both sides of his mouth. And when he is addressed, he merely tells those who question him whatever it is that he feels that they want to hear. I've been observing this pattern for over four years now. So he tells a Mexican that he could be a Christian. But then on, out of the other side of his mouth, 
he tells the white nationalists that Christ came only for white Anglo-Saxons. The psychologist at work, manipulating his audience and tickling their ears. Unless one actually stops and looks at the evidence, how can one be able to evaluate my accusation? Last week, I listened to a portion of a program, a portion which lasted for one hour, where this person was interviewed by another so-called pastor, one who uses the old Aryan Nations title. And he proved himself to be a clown. First, in another venue following this program, he is admitted not having looked at the details of the issues before interviewing this person. But nevertheless, he spent an hour allowing this person to defend himself from the label of universalist without making one point as to the possible substance of the charge. During that hour, the two buffoons came to the conclusion that the label was merely a pejorative. They derided the label of universalist as the N-word of Christian identity. If one were on trial for a crime, one would have to defend himself against the substance of the charges by refuting the evidence. If one were accused of murder, I've been there, making the claim that the label of murderer is merely a pejorative is not an effective defense. It is incredible to me that anyone would have this person on to defend himself against these accusations, but not raise one point in consideration of their actual substance not even taking the time to listen to the evidence which we have presented. No honest man and no honest Christian identity pastor could possibly do such a thing. Therefore, this man who interviewed Eli James on his program last week can't possibly be an honest Christian identity pastor. Whenever we have used the term universalist here, it is not merely a pejorative. Rather, it is a statement of fact describing certain doctrines held by those to whom we apply the label. Of course, one may choose to avoid the label by redefining it for oneself or by picking and choosing from certain theological dictionaries since various sects define the term differently. I do not even own one such theological dictionary. The Bible is my theological dictionary. It's my only theological dictionary. Here is how we define the term universalism generally. Universalism is the belief that Yahweh, the God of the Bible and the God of Israel, blesses, favors, shows mercy, or demonstrates grace towards any people other than those who are the explicit subjects of the promises of these things in Scripture. Aside from this, universalism is the belief that Yahweh God has provided his word for the benefit, for the practice, for the obedience, or for the prosperity of anyone outside of those to whom he explicitly provided it 
for those same purposes. We must remember that the psalm, Psalm 137, tells us that Yahweh God only provided his law to the children of Israel. He had not done so with any other nation. Additionally, universalism is the belief that Yahweh God, for beneficent purposes, works through or operates upon or on behalf of any people other than those whom he has explicitly chosen for such purposes as stated in his word, Jacob, my servant. With these definitions, if one believes that a Mexican can be a Christian, then one is a universalist. If one believes that Yahweh, our God, would bless a Negro, then one is a universalist. If one believes that Yahweh, our God, will judge bastards or those of other races based upon their works, implying that he would reward them for good works, then one is a universalist. If one believes that white people, if one believes that the Adamic race should bless, care for, provide for, or do anything purposely for the benefit of the other races, then one is a universalist. Now the following definition is from a source which I would usually scoff at but which is perhaps ideal considering the topic here. I'm going to quote from the Wikipedia definition of universalism. Universalism, in its primary sense, refers to, refers to religious, theological, and philosophical concepts with universal application or applicability. That's Wikipedia, with religious, theological, or philosophical concepts which have universal application or applicability. Wikipedia goes on to state, religion in this context is defined as a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies, usually involving devotional and ritual observances and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs. The idea that Adamic people should rule over the other races with the law of God. Wikipedia goes on to say, Universalism is a term used to identify particular doctrines considering all people in their formation. The idea that the Adamic people should rule over the other races with the law of God, something they'll never understand, is universalism. Fits that definition perfectly. That's Wikipedia. Universalism is a term used to identify particular doctrines considering all people in their formation. Very succinct definition, and they're right about that one. Universalism, they continue, is the religious, in the religious context, claims that religion is a universal human quality. This can be contrasted with non-universalist religions. Eli James said, and I quote, his Beast of the Field article, Part 5, as it was published, 
This is in PDF format on the Internet as it was published in the July 2011 edition of the New Ensign Magazine on page 6. Eli James said, and I quote, The blacks will go back to Africa. The Orientals will go back to China. The Mexicans will be sent back to Mexico. And we Adamites, and I'm leaving a line out about the Jews, and we Adamites will keep the lands that Yahweh has given to us. And he goes on to say, and there will be peace and prosperity everywhere after Adam kind gets restored to the condition intended for our first parents, Adam and Eve. They're Eli James's words. If one believes that the Adamic man will rule over the other races with the laws of Yahweh our God, that is a doctrine which has universal application. That's universalism. And it considers all people in its formation. Therefore, it is a universalist doctrine. If one believes that a Mexican, Negro, or Chinaman can be a Christian, even if he is separate from whites, then one is a universalist because it is an idea with universal application that puts all people into its consideration. If one believes that God judges people based upon their works, other than those people of the Adamic race, then one is a universalist. If one believes that the other races will benefit in any way from the restoration of the Adamic man to the kingdom of Yahweh, then one is a universalist. Eli James, that one passage in his writing proves that he is a universalist. There are many others. And I didn't write the Wikipedia definition. I may have my own, but I'm gauging him by theirs right now. Christian identity is a non-universalist religion because our God is not a universalist God. He is the God of Israel exclusively by his word in the days of Abraham. Every nation had its own gods. For that reason, Yahweh gave them all up, as Paul explains, and chose Abraham alone out of all those nations. These were, of course, only the Adamic Genesis 10 nations. No aliens were ever considered as candidates for such election. From this point forward, from the promise of Abraham forward, Yahweh was the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Christ professed that he came only for the sheep, only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Therefore, the word of God says in Micah chapter 4, verse 5, For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God, with a small g. And we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. Yet, according to Scripture, the gods of all people, excepting Israel, are little but vain idols. As Psalm 96.5 succinctly says, for all the gods of the nation, of the nations are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Micah tells us that all people, 
all others but Israel will follow after their gods, with a small g. Yahweh says of those gods in Zechariah chapter 13, and I'll quote verse 2, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. If in the end all of the idols, all of the false gods are destroyed, then as Micah tells us, all those other peoples who walk everyone in the name of his God will follow likewise. We must not be caught amongst their number. 1 John 5.21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. When Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, come out from among them and touch not the unclean, he's talking about those people who were not cleansed on the cross of Christ. Because the temple of Yahweh has no agreement with idols. We're to separate ourselves totally from the other races because we are the children of God, because ye are gods, Psalm 86, which Christ himself quotes in that same context. We have a destiny with our Father in the kingdom of heaven. The other races do not have that destiny. Because unless a man be born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. They can't be Christians. They can't share our promises. And they sure as hell shouldn't share our communion. Eli James is a universalist. By the Wikipedia definition of the word. By any rational definition of the word. I don't care what theological dictionary he wants to cherry pick from to get a, 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 some sort of definition that he doesn't fulfill. He's a universalist. There's no doubt. That's what universalism is. It, it's the application of our covenants, of our religion to peoples who are not its recipients to peoples other than those explicitly promised. The book of Acts, chapter 1, part 2. Last week we, we, we left off at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we will pick up there this week. Discussing Amos chapter 3 here last month, we presented a lengthy dissertation concerning the biblical phrase, all the families of the earth, where Yahweh tells the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And from many scriptures found in both the Old and New Testaments, it was demonstrated that within the biblical context, the use of the phrase can only be applied to that group of white Adamic nations which is listed in Genesis chapter 10. It cannot be applied to anyone outside of that group. We made that proof here last month from Amos 3.2, from Psalm 
from Genesis chapter 10, from Genesis chapter 11, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and from Acts chapter 17. As Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The listing of those generations. And that word is the Hebrew word toledah, Strong's number 8435, which means descendants or descent. The listing of those generations found in Genesis chapter 10 are a part of that book. And none of the promises made to those people, those Genesis 10 families and nations, such as the, that which is made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. None of those promises can ever be applied, justly applied, to anyone else outside of those Genesis 10 Adamic families. Then again, just, la- just last week, where we left off discussing verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, we presented many scriptures from the Old Testament which demonstrate that the phrase, all the ends of the earth, is a prophetic phrase which relates to the dispersion of the children of Israel and to nobody else or nothing else, since ends isn't exactly a people. It implies a geographical point. Yahweh had said through the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah, but also others, that Israel would be scattered to all the ends of the earth. We see it in the Psalms, we see it in Jeremiah, and we see it in Genesis chapter 49. As the word of God says in Isaiah chapter 26, and I'll read verse 15, Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Speaking of the children of Israel. Therefore, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there is Luke's record of some of the last words of Christ to the apostles where he said, Rather, you shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. Among other prophecies, this is in fulfillment of the promises made to Israel made in Isaiah chapter 55. And I'll quote verses 3 and 4. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. That witness, Yahshua Christ, came only for the sheep, as Yahweh had promised. The phrase, all the ends of the earth, in the New Testament, refers to the dispersion of Israel, which was described in that manner in the Old Testament. It doesn't apply to anybody else. 
It doesn't matter how many Negroes and Chinamen are in between Palestine and all the ends of the earth. The gospel message was never intended for Negroes and Chinamen. If they hear it on its way to the ends of the earth, big deal. It means nothing. They aren't the recipients of the message. They could never understand it anyway. Just as Christ spoke in parables so that the people, certain people where he was, couldn't understand it. He didn't care if they heard it. They sure as hell weren't going to understand it. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And speaking these things, upon their watching, he was lifted up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing into the heaven upon his going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood by them. And they said, Men, Galileans, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Yahshua, who is taken up from you into the heaven, thusly shall he come in the manner which you have beheld him going into the heaven. A lot of people, even in Christian identity, don't get that last line. That they like to rationalize the second coming of Christ as manifesting itself through something other than this literal statement that he shall return just as he has departed. As the book of Enoch says, and as the Apostle Jude quotes, behold, Yahweh cometh with tens of thousands of his saints. He shall return exactly the same way he left, exactly as described in Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Any other supposition is not Christianity. It's rationalism. Luke had already informed us that Yahshua was taken up into the heaven from the presence of the apostles, where he wrote in his, at the end of his gospel in Luke 24, 51. And I quote, And it happened upon his blessing them that he had separated from them and was carried up into the heaven. So I ask, was Yahshua Christ taken up into the heavens once? Or was he taken up twice? Luke opens this book of Acts, his second book detailing the coming in the gospel of Christ, with this statement, that first account referring to his gospel. I had made concerning all things, O lover of Yahweh, which Yahshua continued both to do and to teach until that day he was taken up. There were not two ascensions of Christ. Luke mentions the ascension of Christ at the end of his gospel. And then he describes it in further detail here at the beginning of his book of Acts. This repetition is a literary device which can be termed recapitulation. 
Some universalist pastors in Christian identity deny that such a literary device is employed in Scripture. However, clearly, we see it here in a transition from Luke to Acts, from Luke chapter 24 to Acts chapter 1. We see another example of recapitulation at the end of Genesis chapter 10, where in the last verse of that chapter, the division of the Adamic nations is mentioned. But then a fuller account of that division is provided in Genesis chapter 11. But the first example of recapitulation occurs in the opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of the Adamic race mentioned in verses 26 through 28. Then in Genesis chapter 2 through to Genesis chapter 4, a more detailed account of the creation of that race and the events of its earliest history are provided. Then again, at the opening of Genesis chapter 5, there is one more recapitulation of the same event where it says, and I quote, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the day that God created man. This is Genesis chapter 5. Well, God created man in Genesis chapter 1. God created man in Genesis chapter 2. Many days passed. Eve conceived Cain. Eve conceived Abel. Abel and Cain grew up. Cain slew Abel. Adam and Eve were rejected from the garden. 130 years. And Adam bore Seth, or, or I'm sorry, Adam sired Seth. And this is the day, this is the day that God created man in Genesis chapter 5. Because that word day doesn't mean a literal 24-hour day. It means an age. The same word can be used to refer to an age. It's an indefinite period of time. As well as a literal day. The word bears either meaning. And here, obviously, it's an indefinite period of time. That's the way the word is used in the opening chapters of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is Genesis 5. Did Yahweh create Adam in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, or in Genesis 5? In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. He was created, they were created. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 5, all of the words for man or man in connection with these creations are the same Hebrew word Adam. Whether it is accompanied with the article or not is immaterial. These are not three different creations of three different Adamic men. Rather, they all refer to the same creation of the same race, an account 
which is recapitulated in these early chapters of Genesis in various ways. There was one creation of one Adamic race. It's described in various ways in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 5. We see recapitulation is a pretty common device in the Bible. Here there are three examples of its use. The second being in the transition from Genesis 10 to 11, and the third in the transition from the end of Luke to the beginning of his second book, the book of Acts. In order to discuss another important aspect of this passage of Acts, here we shall repeat these verses where Luke says, or where Luke writes, and speaking these things upon their watching, he was lifted up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing into the heaven upon his going, then behold, two men in white clothing, the description used very much, is very much the same as that given of the angels at the tomb, at the resurrection. Two men in white clothing stood by them, and they said, men, Galileans, why do you look, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Yahshua, who was taken up from you into the heaven, thusly shall he come in the manner which you have beheld him going into the heaven. Then a cloud received him. We must compare the account of the cloud found at the transfiguration on the mount, described in Matthew chapter 17. Or in Mark chapter 9, and then Luke 9, it's in three Gospels. We must compare the cloud with that found in the statement at Job chapter 26. And we must also compare this with the circumstances of Ezekiel's vision from the first chapter of that prophet's book. And there are many other passages of Scripture I will not include here. From Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration on the mount, from verse 30, and behold, two men were speaking with him, which were Moses and Elijah, and verse 31, who appearing with effulgence had spoken of his departure, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And we'll skip to verse 34 and the end of this conversation. And upon his saying these things, there came a cloud, and it overshadowed them. And they were frightened upon the entering of them into the cloud, they meaning the apostles who were witnessing these things. When the cloud had lifted, the men, identified as Moses and Elijah, the men were gone. From Job, from Job chapter 26, one verse, I'm sorry, two verses, verses 8 and 9. He bindeth up, he referring to Yahweh our God, he bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holds back the face of his throne and spreads his cloud upon it. I have a quote from the ancient Sumerian. This dates to probably before 2500 B.C. From the ancient Sumerian hymn to Enlil. 
as it is recorded in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, edited by J.B. Pritchard, printed at Princeton University Press, 1969, page 575. It's a long poem. I'm only going to quote one line. Actually, I think this is three lines as it's reproduced in the, um, in the verse format in the book itself. As he sets up his dais in the mountain mist, this is the Sumerian reference, the, the Sumerian scribe's reference to his god Enlil, E-N-L-I-L. As he sets up his dais in the mountain mist, he rotates it in heaven like a rainbow. He makes it roam about like a floating cloud. In the book of Ezekiel, in the very first chapter, there is a fantastic description of what is ostensibly this throne of Yahweh described by Job. He spreads a cloud upon his throne. Ezekiel begins his description at verse 4 by saying, this is Ezekiel 1, chapter, verse 4, and I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself. And a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, and out of the midst of the fire. The prophet goes on to describe what is apparently a much more complex machine. Wheels within wheels turning and, and figures of creatures. Now, Ezekiel had said that this apparition which he saw was when the heavens were opened and he saw visions of God. So it is arguable whether the account must be accepted literally at face value or whether the prophet merely saw visions as representations of something. However, this thing moved throughout the sky on Ezekiel. Yet the testimony of the apostles in Luke and in Matthew and Mark of the, of, of the event called the Transfiguration on the Mount and the testimony here in this first chapter of Acts certainly represent something quite tangible. And therefore, the, the visions of Ezekiel and the proclamation of Job and the, even the very similar, even though it would be scoffed at as pagan, the very similar passage in the hymn to Enlil must therefore be given merit. Since the dawn of time, man believed that God could transcend his creation. And we should certainly believe that now. Today, people try to, try to rationalize these things. We hear of UFOs. We read of physicists who talk of string theory and parallel universes. These things are all human attempts to describe what the ancients already knew but understood quite differently. That there is more to create the creation of God than what we here on earth can normally perceive. Sometimes, 
we are able to receive glimpses of that greater existence. However, Christians are told not to consult with sorcerers and necromancers. Modern physicists may well fit into those categories. And even if they seem to be educated in the name of so-called science, they are really no different than the ancient Babylonian priests who were able to hold sway over the people because they pretended to a greater knowledge. On the other hand, if God is not real, and if he does not transcend his creation, then Christians have no hope in the world. For these thoughts, Paul scolded the wisdom of Rome, where he said in his epistle to the Romans, and I'll read from chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice, because that which is to be known of Yahweh is visible among them, since Yahweh has made it known to them, namely the unseen things of his from the creation of the order, or the creation of the world, are clearly observed, being understood in the things made both of his eternal power and divinity. For this they are inexcusable. Paul, a true physicist, because he recognized the divinity of Yahweh our God, declared in Hebrews chapter 11, Now faith is expecting an assurance Evidence of the facts not being seen. For by this were the elders accredited. By faith we perceive the ages to be furnished by the word of Yahweh, in which that which is seen has not come into being from things visible. And our scientists today would understand that. As the appellation expressed in the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is from an ancient word which means I am. God does indeed exist. Only in that do Christians have hope. And in that shall our race obtain the victory over his enemies. All those who have corrupted his creation. Christians have to believe that God can indeed transcend the physical creation. Otherwise, we have no hope in the world. Verse 12. Then they returned into, into Jerusalem from the mountain called of Olives. The Mount of Olives. I like to translate that literally. Which is near to Jerusalem, being a Sabbath day's journey. Let's talk about some pragmatic points of the law. Or let's talk pragmatically about some points of the law. I'm sorry. There is no explicit command in the law concerning the distance that one may travel on the Sabbath. You won't find it. This restriction was evidently one of the legalistic traditions of the Pharisees. And it was later codified in the Talmud. In order to determine a Sabbath day's journey, and this will show us the thinking of the Pharisees and how convoluted it is sometimes. 
In order to determine a Sabbath day's journey, which was the distance one was customarily allowed to travel on the Sabbath day, evidently the Pharisees used the distance which was mentioned in Joshua chapter 3, verse 4, and in Numbers chapter 35, verse 4. The distance was 2,000 cubits. In Numbers chapter 35, the regulations were given for the exact size of the Levitical cities in the area around them, which each of the 12 tribes would cede to the Levites. Verses 4 and 5 state, and I quote, And the suburbs of the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city and outward a thousand cubits round about. And ye shall measure from without the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits. And the city shall be in the midst. This shall be to them the suburbs of the cities. Now, 2,000 cubits, to me, actually seems to describe the perimeter on each side. And the 1,000 cubits, the distance to the perimeter. The Pharisees evidently missed or misinterpreted the distance, the difference, the difference in the distances. In Joshua chapter 3, the people of Israel were commanded by the officers of the army to follow the Ark of the Covenant whenever the Levites moved it. And they were told to maintain a distance of 2,000 cubits when they followed it. Verses 3 and 4 of Joshua 3 state, and I quote, And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way heretofore. Perhaps they had not traveled that way before this time. Concerning the Sabbath day, when it was first commanded in the Exodus, men were required not to wander from their place of rest. However, they did gather manna on the Sabbath. This is described in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 29 states, See, for that Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye, every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Therefore, it is evident that the Pharisees used the 2,000-cubit distance of those other scriptures in Numbers 35 and in Joshua chapter 3 in order to judge how far a man could travel on the Sabbath day before he was considered to be out of his place. Although it is also obvious that this figure is quite arbitrary, and that it was not a command from Yahweh God. A standard cubit being about 18 inches, 2,000 cubits would be about 1,000 yards. So therefore, 1,000 yards 
is how far the rabbis today tell their Jews that they could travel on their Sabbath. <laughs> Not that they have any legitimacy as Israel, of course. But now we see where the Pharisees and later the rabbis got the idea from. From that, we can determine that the distance from the gate of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives must have been a distance of about a thousand yards, just over half a mile. Verse 13, and when they had come in, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, both Peter and John and Jacob and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judah the brother of James, or Jacob. Here there are 11 apostles. Of course, Judas Iscariot is not present. He is the subject of the later part of this chapter. Discussing Luke chapter 6, in the listing of the apostles there, it was explained here last year in my Luke presentation that Luke's list varies somewhat from those of Matthew and Mark. Luke counts Jude among the 12 original apostles. Where in the original list of the others, in place of Jude, one Labahius, whose surname was Thaddeus, appears in the lists. Now John puts Jude among the disciples of Christ, mentioned in John chapter 14, verse 22, at the Last Supper. But nowhere is it explained what happened to Thaddeus. I gave arguments here in my Luke chapter 6 translation that Thaddeus is not another name for Jude. It had to be a separate person. Jude is listed as the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, and calls himself the brother of James in his epistle, or Jacob, the son of Alphaeus. James being the way that King James and other popular translations write the word Jacob. Where Luke says Jacob, the son of Alphaeus, and then he says Judah, the brother of Jacob, or Jude, the brother of Jacob, the relationships are only implied and are not explicit in the Greek. And there is no place where Alphaeus is mentioned in connection with Jacob where the relationship is explicitly stated. Here, or in either Matthew chapter 10, Mark 3, or Luke 6. However, since the brothers of Christ are explicitly mentioned in several places, James must be the son of Alphaeus, which is the primary use of the Greek construction. The relationship of Jude, the Apostle Jude, to this James is certain since this is surely the Jude of Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3, where the relationship of both Jude and James 
to Yahshua is explicitly stated. They are the brethren of the Lord. And he is also the Jude of the epistle, Jude, where the author explicitly calls himself the brother of James. Verse 14. All of these were persisting with one accord in prayer, the eleven apostles, with the women and Mary, the mother of Yahshua, or Mariam, the mother of Yahshua, and his brethren. Now the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, have with prayer and in supplication. The ancient codices do not have the words and in supplication. To this last clause in verse 14, the King James Version adds some commas into the text. It must be noted that the placement of punctuation is often quite arbitrary, since the Greek text originally had no punctuation. Although there are certain grammatical indications of the beginnings of many sentences. Now the King James therefore has the end of this last verse, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, comma, and with his brethren. The last occurrence of the word with, seen in the King James Version, is found in the Codex Vaticanus and in the majority text, but it is wanting in the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and the Codex Beze. The Christogenian New Testament therefore follows those manuscripts, especially the Codex Sinaiticus, which state that Mary is the mother of Yahshua and his brethren. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, it is recorded that the people ask of Christ, Is this not the son of a craftsman? Is not his mother called Mariam and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph and Simon and Judah? Jacob and Judah being the apostles listed here in Luke, James the son of Alphaeus and Jude, the apostles of the epistles, by the names James and Jude. The other James, who was an apostle, the other James, who's always listed along with Andrew, Jacobus and Andreas in the Christogenian New Testament, he was one of the sons of Zebedee. He could not be the brother of Christ. The text of Mark 6.3 also contains those same exact questions. Is this not the son of a craftsman? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Jude? Jude, or Judah, and Jacob, or James, are the brethren of Christ, and they are his half-brothers to his mother Mary. It is evident that Mary had several children later in life. The myth of the eternal virgin is a Catholic lie. 
At least three sons and two daughters were born to this woman after she gave birth to Christ. She's now his mother called Mariam, and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph and Simon and Judah, and are not his sisters all here with us. I'm sorry, at least four sons and two daughters. Both Luke, Luke 2.7, and Matthew, Matthew 1.25, both apostles call Yahshua Christ her firstborn son. Not her only son, her firstborn son. After Christ, whom Luke says was supposed to be the son of Joseph, James and his other brothers must be sons of Mary by a man named Alphaeus, since he's called James the son of Alphaeus. And there is a good biblical reason for that contention, for that assertion, I should say, which goes beyond the identifications of these people in Scripture, and which can be demonstrated quite easily. If Joseph, the father of Christ, the stepfather of Christ, the husband of Mary, if Joseph was the legitimate heir to the throne of David, and if later Joseph had other sons, those other sons would have a claim to that throne, since Christ was not Joseph's genetic son. They would also have a claim to that throne upon the death of Christ, if they so if they were so brazen as to deny his resurrection. Think about that. Joseph couldn't have had other sons. Mary's subsequent sons had to be the sons of another man for that reason. And if that is so, then Christ is indeed Joseph's only legitimate heir. Although he was actually raised up by Yahweh for Joseph. Therefore, if Joseph died before he had other sons, Christ can be considered a son raised up as an heir to Joseph by Yahweh himself, even though the conception happened before Joseph actually died. So while Mary indeed had other children later in life, she must have had them by another man. As here we see that James is mentioned, James, the brother of the Lord, is mentioned as being the son of Alphaeus. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. And in those days, Peter, Petros, standing in the midst of the brethren, spoke, and the multitude of names there in that place were about 120. The Codex Beze and the King James, because the majority text has it, have Peter standing in the midst of the students. The text here follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimis Siri, which all have in the midst of the brethren. The Greek phrase 
Aklos Onomaton is literally a multitude of names as it is translated. In his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, Joseph Sayer says, of the use of the word onoma, which means name, literally, Strong's number 3686, and I quote, in imitation of the Hebrew, shemath, and he cites several scriptures, the plural, onomaton, the word shemath in Hebrew is plural for the Hebrew word shem, which means name. The plural onomaton is used equivalent to persons reckoned up by name. And he cites several passages of the New Testament to support that, this being one of them, the others being Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, and chapter 11, verse 13. It is acceptable that Luke is using a Hebraism here. Luke being a Greek. As we have asserted, that Luke did not come into the picture, we asserted this in, in the introduction to this commentary on the book of Acts, Luke did not come into the picture until the events recorded in Acts chapter 15. And therefore, it must be that he has reproduced an account which he obtained from someone who ostensibly has a Hebrew background, a Galilean, one of the other apostles. Therefore, we see a Hebraism in a text which Luke retained. Now, the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, they do give one similar Greek use of the word onoma in the construction, enonomati ainahi, which means to have a name, to be notable. But that's not quite the same as the Hebraism. And it may be possible that the word may have been used here to indicate that about 120 persons of those known by name among the disciples were present, However, it seems rather that Luke is simply using a Hebraism because he received this account from one of the native Hebrew-speaking apostles. Luke 1, verse 16. Man, brethren, it is necessary for the writing to be fulfilled. Remember, this is Peter speaking to the other apostles and to 120 other people. It is necessary for the writing to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit before spoke through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who had been a guide for those who seized Joshua, because he was counted among us and had obtained a share of this ministry. Judas was a guide to those who seized Joshua when he led them to the place called Gethsemane and indicated to them which of the people gathered there was actually Christ, which is related in all four gospel accounts. The Judas had a share of the ministry of Christ as allowed by Christ himself, who is recorded in John chapter 6 as having stated, 
Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke, the apostle says, of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. We see Judas was sent off with the 72 when they were sent on their apostolic mission during the life of Christ. Acts 1.18 So then he acquired a field from the wages of unrighteousness, and having been crashed face down in the midst, then all of his bowels had spilled out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So as that field is called in their language, Akeldamach, which is field of blood. The word dialectos, the Greek word dialectos is language here, and it may have been rendered dialect. It's obviously the Greek original of our English word dialect. It appears in the New Testament only in Acts. I always translate it language. There's another word we'll meet in in Acts chapter 2. The word is glossa. It is literally tongue. That is also used to describe a language. I translated it as tongue literally in Acts chapter 2 and chapter verses 4 and 11 to distinguish it from the word dialectus. Peter's use of the phrase here, in their language, speaking of a Hebrew word, and speaking of the Judeans of Jerusalem, certainly indicates that here, Peter was speaking Greek and not Hebrew. While Peter certainly spoke Hebrew, he was a Hebrew speaker, Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 to 75. It was evidently with some difficulty the Judeans were able to identify him by the way he spoke. They identified him as a Galilean, Matthew 26, 73. Some manuscripts read in their own language as the King James Version has it, in their proper tongue. The text of the Christogonian New Testament omits the word own or wants the word own because it follows the Codexes Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and also the Codex Beze in this instance. The reference to the field is a reference to that potter's field which the priests had purchased for the 30 pieces of silver which Judas returned to them. From Matthew chapter 27, I'll read from verse 1. When the morning was come, all of the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. I'm quoting the King James translation. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. 
And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for them to, for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to, buy, to bury strangers in it. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day because of the price of blood. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Now, it wasn't Jeremiah the prophet. We discussed that when we presented that chapter of Matthew here two years ago. Many have charged that the account of Judas, the account of Judas the traitor's fate here conflicts with that related by Matthew in Matthew chapter 27. Yet in their haste to find fault, they fail to realize that neither account is necessarily complete. But both, when placed together, can be quite cohesive if the events which are related here took place, if the events which are related here in the book of Acts took place after Judas hanged himself, which is entirely plausible. Judas hanged himself, and then when the body came down, whether it fell, whether it was cut down, however you want to think about it, being weakened in its constitution from rotting while hanging, it could easily have been crashed face down in the midst, and then all of his bowels spilled out. Both, both accounts can be right. Neither account is necessarily wrong or disproven or refuted. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry or refuted by, the, by, by its companion, both Matthew and Acts, can very plausibly be accurate. Neither account is complete. <laughs> Verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, his home must be desolate, and there must not be one dwelling in it, and another must take his office. This is the writing Peter referred to at the beginning of this discourse, recorded in verse 16. It seems that most Bible commentators attributed the first clause here, attribute the first clause here to Psalm 69, where in verse 25, David praying against his enemies says in part, let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. And that is fine. The second clause is then usually attributed to Psalm 109, where David prays against the wicked, and he says, among other things, and I'll read verses 6 through 8, Set thou a wicked man over him, 
and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Which was now quoted in Acts in reference to Judas, who certainly was a wicked man. Yet, in the Septuagint version of Psalm 109, we see both ideas expressed. And I will read two additional verses beyond those which were just cited from the King James Version. I'll read from verse 6 to verse 10. Set thou a sinner against him, and let the devil stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him go forth condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office of overseer. Let his children be orphans, and his wife a widow. Let his children wander without a dwelling place and beg. Let them be cast out of their habitations. And one cast out of his dwelling place certainly has a home left desolate. As the word for office, where the King James Version has bishopric, the Greek word episcope, Strong's number 1984, is a watching over or a visitation, the office of an episcopus, generally simply an office. It is akin to the word episcopus, Strong's 1985. The root word through the late ecclesiastical Latin word, episcopus, the P being changed to a B, of our English word bishop. The English word bishop is the Latin word episcopus, which is the Greek word episcopus. An episcopus, according to Liddell and Scott, is one who watches over an overseer, a guardian, a public officer, a supervisor, an intendant. It is usually bishop in the King James Version. In Luke's writing, episcopus only appears in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 where in the Christianity New Testament, the word is overseer. Often in Paul's, re- Paul's letters, I translate it supervisor. So we see that the office of Judas is considered an episcopus. The office of the apostles is considered an episcopus. a function of an overseer or a supervisor of the gospel, of the spreading of the gospel. That's the function they fulfill later on in Acts chapter 4. Verse 21. Therefore it is necessary of the men gathering together with us during all the time in which Prince Joshua came in and went out with us, beginning from the immersing from the immersing or the baptizing of John until the day when he was taken up from us for one of them to become a witness with us of his resurrection 
Now, there's a word here. The King James has the word ordained here. The Greek word, genestahi, is an infinitive form of the verb genomahi, Strong's number 1096, which is literally simply to come into being. It's to be or to become. And therefore, in this form, it's translated here as to become, to become a witness with us, where the King James makes it into to be ordained, which is simply a, a stretch of the imagination. It, it's um, church language. The King James was, the translation was designed to uphold the structure of the Anglican Church. Verse 23, And they stood up too. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Eustace, or Justice, and the Matthias. The Codex Beze has, and he stood up too, meaning Peter. The Greek word histami, Verse 24, Strong's number 2476, is literally to make to stand. It may have been metaphorically rendered as nominate here, and they nominated two. Joseph Carbosabbas and Matthias. As it has been said here already, the book of Acts is a book of transition. In it, the apostles still have a lot to learn. Many of those things are later reflected in their epistles because learn them they did. Many of those things are reflected in the later chapters of Acts. It may seem pretentious to second-guess the apostles. However, it must, and it can be realized that these men were men no different from ourselves, even if they had the benefit of walking with Yahshua Christ for over three years. Of course Peter was a good man. Of course he was blessed in many ways. <laughs> However, the gospel accounts themselves tell us in many places that he was not perfect and that he often was found rebelling against Christ insisting upon his own will rather than giving himself over to the will of God. And that is stated explicitly, where in Matthew chapter 16, as it is recorded, Peter was told by Christ, Get behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. When he resisted the things which Christ had told him concerning his own fate. Later Peter swore, that he would never be offended on account of Christ. And as Christ immediately prophesied, Peter denied him three times that very night. Peter also had to be told three times, as it is recorded in John after the resurrection, that if he loved Christ, he should feed the sheep. Once more, at a time much later than this, in Acts chapter 10, it is recorded that Peter had to be shown the vision of the four square sheet three times before he understood what was being related to him by God. The words of Christ 
described to us the stubborn will of Peter, where it is recorded that he told him in John chapter 21, from verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girt yourself and walked about wherever you wished. But when you should grow old, you shall extend your hand, and another shall gird you and bring you where you do not wish. Joshua said that to Peter. Here we have another example, as I discern it, of Peter's stubborn will. Even if he attempts to do good, <clears throat> here he is attempting to fill the role of the replacement for Judas Iscariot on his own initiative. This is being done on Peter's initiative. Note that there is no indication that he has yet, as of yet prayed on the matter, nor is he filled with the Holy Spirit as we see in Acts chapter 2. Now that might seem, a lot of people might scoff, oh, thanks, second-guessing Peter. But the proof of this interpretation is made right here. After this chapter of Acts, we do not again hear of this Matthias. He is nowhere mentioned. He disappears from the scene right here. We do not hear again of this Matthias who was chosen by Peter to replace Judas. The will of man is vanity. Yahshua Christ himself chooses Paul as an apostle shortly afterward. And in Acts chapter 9, we see Paul's conversion by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. Paul goes on to become the chief apostle to the nations of dispersed Israel. And his ministry is remembered to this day. The will of man is vanity, but the will of God upheld his choice. The Paul bashers are as stubborn as Peter. Verse 24. Then praying, they said, You, prince, knower of all hearts, show which one of these two you have chosen to receive the place of this ministry, an ambassadorship from which Judas has transgressed to go into his own place. And they gave lots to them, and a lot fell upon Matthias. And he was counted along with the eleven ambassadors. Yes, the apostles prayed at this point. They prayed after they nominated two men. Prayer or not, good intentions or not, at this point, the apostle had taken it upon his own initiative to nominate two men as candidates for the office left vacant by Judas. And the lot had to fall to one or the other. Yet, as we have already related, nothing ever became of the ministry of Messiah. That reflects the actual will of God, that when the devices of men are not aligned with the will of God, nothing will ever become of them. That is where the lesson is in this event in the book of Acts. Thank you for listening. I will be here next week with Acts chapter 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the non-universalist God of Israel. I will be here tomorrow night, I believe with sword brethren, I haven't spoken to him all week. 
we will be discussing, or, or we will be presenting against the Paul Bashers, part 17. Praise Yahweh. Oh, <laughs> 